as Dana played Canon in D, watching these bridesmaids walk forward just before Kimbo came in. It was flashback. Thank you. Um, as Joey was praying, I was reminded of two things, and that's how I want to start our sermon, or start this time this morning. I want to spend a moment in prayer. I was reminded of two things. Uh, today is Sanctity of Life Sunday. It's a day where across this nation we, we uh, mourn the millions of lives who've been lost uh, due to abortion. And, so, um, and to remember uh, the priority of adoption and uh, partnering with... Uh, and it's also uh, tomorrow is Martin Luther King Day, and it's a day where we mourn our uh, nation's uh, racial injustices and the, uh, the, the strides that we've made and the unity that we have in Christ. And so before we dive in this morning, let me pray for those two things. Lord, we are thankful that you are sovereign, that nothing happens outside of your control. And if, if we didn't believe that, if we didn't know that, then, then uh, we would have no hope that, um, that our nation and our world was, uh, was heading towards anything but just utter destruction. Um, we do mourn, Lord. Uh, Roe v. Wade, we mourn since the 70s, 45 years now, roughly, of um, just sort of unfettered uh, abortion and uh, the lives that have been taken. We mourn that. Uh, children made in your image, knit together in the womb, and uh, the loss of life there. We pray for those who seek to um, come alongside young mothers um, and uh, unwed mothers, and uh, we pray for the adoption. We pray for um, mend and other pregnancy centers. We pray for um, a, a moment of clarity in our nation where uh, we would seek to see those injustices reversed. And we also are mindful, Lord, of um, uh, another blot on our nation's history, and that is how we have treated minorities, particularly African Americans. And we're thankful for men that you raised up, like Dr. King and others who had clar clarity of voice to, um, to call us uh, to set aside those sorts of injustices. We've got a long way to go, Lord, but we're thankful for the strides that have been made. And so during this day and tomorrow, um, I pray that it would not just be a day off of school for the kids um, or a day off of work for some, but, Lord, that it would truly be a time where we reflect on your good and uh, goodness and grace and control over all things. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today we're going to begin a series through the book of Acts, and uh, we're going to spend the better part of this year working our way through it. And so if you, uh, if you ever get anxious wondering, uh, what's Jeremy going to preach on next? Um, it's going to be Acts. Um, uh, we'll take maybe a break here or there during the season of Lent leading up to Easter. We might, uh, we'll certainly take a break periodically throughout the summer with guest preachers and such, but we're going to be in Acts for the foreseeable future. I was outlining it this past week, trying to think how I was going to break it up into some bite-sized chunks for sermons, and uh, I thought I really would love to end by this date in the fall of um, 2019, and I kept pushing it back and pushing it back, so uh, we're going to spend some time in Acts. And I would love for you to take some time over the next couple of weeks uh, to read through Acts, 28 chapters just begin today, if you haven't already, and just read through in, in a setting or two the book of Acts. It won't take you long, and it'll benefit you, because when the sermons focus on a particular passage or certain parts, you'll have a better sense of the whole. So this morning, we're going to look at chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, 
If you have a Bible, I would love for you to turn there. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. If you're not quite sure where to find Acts, um, it's your fifth book in the New Testament. And so after you find those white pages, the break, um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, then you'll find Acts. That's page 909 in the Pew Bibles. So if you don't have a Bible, you can grab one there and, uh, and read it there. But you can make your way, and then we will we'll now pray just for clarity in God's word, and then I'll read God's word for us. Lord, um, the grass withers and the flower fades, but your word remains forever because it is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. And so, open our eyes and unstop our ears and give us receptive hearts as we read your word. I seek to faithfully preach your word. The Spirit would work through the word this morning in each of us. For Christ's sake and in his name, amen. You there? Your other option, of course, is to find your bulletin and follow along there, but um, there's something about holding a Bible. Um, I often open up my phone or my iPad and find it there, but there's just something about the Bible. We won't be legalistic about it, but if you've got a Bible, grab one. And we'll, let's read. This is God's holy word. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up or after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. And to them he presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. May God write his word upon our hearts. So before we dive into these verses and before we really dive into this series, I want to take just a moment here, just a, a brief moment here at the beginning to give you some background, to give you some context. I think it's always important as we, as we begin a series through a particular book of the Bible to spend just a moment understanding um, the background. So the book of Acts was written in the mid-60s of the first century by the Apostle Luke. All right, so the mid-60s of the first century by Luke. And uh, I was telling Quinn this morning, th there's, a, there's a handful of scholars um, who have said that maybe it was written as late as A.D. 96. So when you're trying to date one of these writings, it can be sometimes difficult. And there have been a handful who have said, well, maybe it was written in the mid-90s of the first century. Um, but that late of a date really doesn't work, and I'll tell you why. There, there's no mention in Acts of the destruction of Jerusalem by Emperor Titus in the year uh, A.D. 70. There's no mention of that. And nor is there any mention of the Apostle John's exile on the island of Patmos um, in the early 90s 
of, of the first century. Now, those are pretty important events in the history of the church, right? The destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, John's exile on the island of Patmos. Um, and if you were writing a history of the early church, those would have been pretty important events to include. But there's no mention of them in Acts. So it's, it's more likely that, that Luke wrote uh, Acts in the mid-60s of the first century. That's about 30 years after Jesus was crucified, risen, and ascended. In many ways, uh, Acts was written to provide a history of the early church. So it was originally part of a two-volume work called History of Christian Origins. When Luke wrote it, he wrote the first volume, the Gospel according to Luke, and then he wrote the second volume, the Acts of the Apostles. But they were originally part of a two-volume work, the History of Christian Origins. And so, just for context, in Luke chapter 1, verse 3, Luke 1, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verse 3, uh, Luke writes that he thought it was good, that he thought it was necessary to give his record of Jesus' life and ministry for the particular benefit of a man named Theophilus. So in Luke 1-3, in that gospel, Luke says, I I think it's good, I think it's necessary, it's it's important for me to give my record of Jesus' life and ministry, all that he did for you, Theophilus. And we just heard a moment ago in verse 1 of Acts, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. And and so I want you to think of it this way. Acts is a continuation of Luke's gospel. It's a little bit history. It's a little bit instruction guide. It's a little bit theology. And it's a whole lot of gospel. Acts picks up, and that's exactly where it falls in the New Testament, but it picks up where the gospels leave off. With Jesus risen from the tomb and ascended into heaven. So Ethan and I were talking I guess a week or two ago. Um, Historically, this book has been called the Acts of the Apostles, but I think a better name for it is the Acts of the Holy Spirit because it's all about the Holy Spirit coming with power and working to build the church in the earliest days. That's really sort of the macro theme. It, It tells the story of the Holy Spirit coming and empowering the very first group of Christians and how they grew from a ragtag group of doubters into a mission-minded force for church planting, for the gospel truly to go to the ends of the earth. The book of Acts covers the first three decades of Christian history, if we, if we consider Jesus' ascension and the Holy Spirit coming as sort of the beginning of Christian history. It covers three decades. It gives us the origin story of the greatest missionary who ever lived, the Apostle Paul. And it tells us what the early church was like and really what we're supposed to be like in many ways. And one of the things I'll, I'll sort of give you a heads up as we work our way through, it, it's really important that as you're reading through the book of Acts, you, you understand and make the distinction between what is descriptive and what is prescriptive. Right? I'll try to help you make sense of that as we're working our way through. What is Luke describing about the early church that was unique to their time and to their place and, and, uh, and the Christians as they were just growing what was he describing and what was he prescribing? Meaning, what is, what, is, uh, what is binding for us now? And so it tells what the early church was like and tells what we're supposed to be like. There's another part to this story, though, that's very important to, to understand here at the beginning. In chapter 8, verses 22, 
That's the very end uh, of this book. Uh, there, close to the end, Luke writes that all of this, all of this that he's written about, all of this took place at a time when Christianity was everywhere spoken against. That's what he says. That all of this takes, pl- take, take, takes place at a time when Christianity is, is as, far as, as far as he knew, everywhere uh, spoken, of it, spoken against. So the, the events in Acts unfolded during a time of turmoil, during a time of persecution, and yet the church grew and flourished. They took place at a time when all of the outside forces were seeking to tamp her down. And so one of the things that we need to take away from our time in Acts is is the Holy Spirit, how he worked to build and embolden and empower the church when all the forces outside the church were seeking to destroy her. Because you see, the times that we live in are eerily similar to this time. The, The times that we live in today are eerily similar to this time. God provided for his people then, and he's still provides now. And so that's, that's how I want to begin this, this sermon and this series. I want you to think of these first three weeks as a series within a series. Right? So these first three weeks, today, next week, the first week in February, this is a mini-series within the greater series of Acts. And we're going to call this mini-series God Provides. Because in chapters 1 through 11, God provides the mission. And then in verses 12 through 26, God provides leaders. And then in chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 13, God provides the power, the power of the Holy Spirit. So in these first chapter, this first chapter and a half is all about God provides. He provides a mission, he provides leaders to lead in that mission, and he provides power for the mission. So this morning we're going to consider how God provides for his people, the mission. So in our passage, the Lord tells the disciples, I'm now returning to the Father. I'm going to leave you. I'm returning to the Father. But I'm going to come again. I'll return to you. And in the meantime, I have a mission for you. And your mission, not should you choose to accept it, your mission, regardless of whether you want to accept it or not, is to be empowered witnesses and to take the gospel message to the ends of the earth. And and so here, as as Jesus is ascending, he leaves his followers a mission. And there are all sorts of of objections that that creep in, all sorts of temptations. There's a a little voice that whispers to us and tries to convince us that, that the mission is not for us or the mission is too hard or or we can leave the mission to someone else. And I want to address that here right at the beginning. So Christ gives us a mission. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We hear that, but we also hear another little voice that says, meh, maybe that's not for us. Sometimes we say, well, well, the mission is for missionaries like the Coonies. The mission's for them. Or it's for pastors like Jeremy and Jason. But I want you to know you don't get off the hook that easily. 
You see, the, the larger context, which will become abundantly clear in a couple of weeks as we, as we go into chapter 2, is that the mission is given to everyone who is given the Holy Spirit. And that's every believer. The, 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 the mission that is empowered and fueled by the Holy Spirit is given to every believer. And so those who have the Holy Spirit have the mission. So that's one temptation. You know, that's not, it's not for us. It's for folks like the Coonies who God has given a particular call to to, to take, um, to uproot and to go to Honduras. Or guys like Jeremy and Jason or whomever. And, and sometimes we say, well, I can't do it. I, I don't have the ability. But our passage tells us very clearly that our ability comes from the Holy Spirit's empowerment. And so I agree with you, you can't do it. But the Holy Spirit working through you can. And so, so we set that objection aside. And then sometimes we say, well, well, I don't know what to do. Lord, you haven't been clear enough, but, but the mission is clear. We're going to really explore it this morning. You will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. And so as we think about the mission that God has given to his church uh, collectively, but to his people individually, to everyone who is, who is indwelt with the Holy Spirit, as we think about this mission, I, I want us to really fight to set aside our objections. And I want us to fight against any temptations that the mission is somehow not for us. And so with that in mind, I just have two thoughts that I want you to consider this morning. <laughs> On a side note, uh, I was thinking most of my sermons are three points. Occasionally there's a fourth point of, of particular application. This sermon is two points. doesn't mean it's going to be shorter. It just means that it's going to have two sort of main thoughts. Um, but there's a, a pastor who was preaching three weeks ago at a 50-point sermon. I want to listen to that and uh, model that maybe. He actually, it was an it hour and five minute sermon, so I don't know how he worked his 50 points into an hour and five minutes, but maybe there's a place for that. You just got two this morning, just two. two. Two thoughts that I would like you to consider, and the first thought that I really want us to consider and, and um, mull over is this. The time is now. We have a mission, and the time is now. So, notice what the disciples asked in verse 6. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Even after walking and talking with Jesus for three years, even after uh, being taught by him and discipled by him, even after hearing him repeatedly say, as the Gospels record, that his kingdom is not of this world, the disciples still wanted to know when Jesus was going to restore the kingdom of Israel to her former glory. You know, it would really be kind of funny if it weren't so sad. But we can be just as thick-headed. So, Lord, now, all that stuff you did was great. Rising from the dead, pretty cool. Now, will you restore the kingdom of Israel? I love Jesus' response. He doesn't even mention the kingdom. He doesn't correct their wrong assumptions. He doesn't call them fools. He simply says, hey, it's not your place to know God's timetable. It's not your place. So I, I have a rule in our home with the kids. Uh, I have many rules, but uh, one of my rules is I don't answer the question why. And they'll tell you. So, so this happens inevitably, happens all the time. 
Um, I, I will say, kids, pick up the loft. Or, hey kids, unload the dishwasher before mom gets home. Or, don't make any plans this weekend. And inevitably, one of them will say, why? Do this, do that, why? And I remind them that when it comes to those sorts of things, I don't answer that question. I don't answer the why question. Now, to be fair, so that you don't think I'm a terrible parent, or worse than I already am, if, if they were to ask me, hey, Dad, why does God allow suffering? Or why is it important to go to church? Now, I will answer those kind of why questions all day long. And I, th I think that Jesus is taking an almost parental approach here with the disciples. He's invoking a similar kind of authority. They say, Lord, at this time, will you now restore the kingdom of Israel? And Jesus essentially says, I'm not answering that. I don't answer those kind of questions. It, it, it's actually really none of your business. Right now, you've got a mission. And the time, since you're so concerned with time, is now. Now listen, here's what we don't know. We don't know when Jesus is going to return. We know that he is going to return. He tells us that multiple times in the Gospels. He tells us that himself. And these two angels here in verse 11 remind us of that. He's going to return in the same way that he left. He's going to come again in might and power. So we know that he is going to return, but we don't know when he's going to return. And scores of people throughout history have said, well, maybe it'll be this date or that date. Or maybe it'll be this year or that year. And you know what? Every one of them has been proved a liar. Every one of them has been wrong. And so while we don't know, because it's not our place to know, it's not our place. While we don't know when Jesus is going to return, we, don't, we do know that he is going to return. And here's what else we know. We know what we are supposed to do until he returns. We're to be witnesses. This is what he says. I'm leaving. When the Holy Spirit comes, you will be my witnesses. So when I was a kid, my, uh, my parents would give me a list of chores or they would give me a list of tasks. And then they would, they would many times go in, and, and run errands, go into town and run errands. And they would tell me, hey, here's your list of chores. Make sure they're done before we get back. Now, what do you think I did? I did the same thing that my kids do. I goofed around right until it was time for them to get back, and then I scrambled as fast as I could to get it all done. And it was always, it was always really a crapshoot. <laughs> and several times, um, my parents would give me, hey, get this, 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 this. Now, we have a chalkboard in our kitchen, and many times we'll write, you know, it's whoever's birthday, happy birthday, uh, Cademan, happy birthday, Cooper, or we'll put a seasonal note on there. But it's also our, our chore list chalkboard. So we'll put these lists, and you can cross them off or wipe them off when you finish it. But we'd put those lists and, and make sure they're done before we get back. Many times my, uh, my parents would come home. They would find me playing a video game, and the chores were unfinished. I was thinking about that this week, and my, my kids have a tremendous advantage over me because um, we, have, we have phones, and we have an app, and we're all in our, in our family. We're all in this circle, in this app, so we can track one another's locations. 
And so on my phone, it, it notifies me and it notifies one another when one member of the family leaves the house or pulls into the house or when I leave the church or when I leave the school. And so, so I didn't have any kind of device like that to perfect my laziness. <laughs> my kids have an advantage over me. I, I tell you that because I really believe there's a little bit of that childish laziness in all of us. And all of us, at times, procrastinate and put off and get busy with other things, forgetting the main thing that Jesus has left us to do. Just like a kid who, you're, you know your parents are going to return, but hey, I got time. I'll get it done. We many times do the same thing. I know he's going to return. I know he's given me a mission to be about until he returns, but, but I got time. What I want you to know is the time is now. Time is now. Here's the second thing I'd like you to consider. The time is now, and the mission is clear. So in a couple of weeks, we're going to, uh, we're going to explore the power for this mission. And the power is the, is the Holy Spirit. That, that we can't do this on our own, that we will be ineffective on our own. But the Holy Spirit working through us, blazing the trail for us, will ensure um, that we are effective. And so we're going to talk about the power of the Holy Spirit in a, in a couple of weeks. But for today, I just want us to consider the mission itself. The time for this mission is now, and the mission is clear. What does the Holy Spirit empower us to do? What's our mission? You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So I want you to focus on two things. What does it mean or what does it look like to be a witness? What does it mean and what does it look like to witness to the end of the earth? So here's a, here's a fun fact. The word witness is the Greek word martyr. The, the word witness is the Greek word martyr, both in translation and transliteration. Now, I don't, want to, I don't want to misstate this. I don't want to lead you to the wrong conclusion. I'm not implying that being a witness for Jesus will inevitably and always lead to your death. It has led to that. And in many places around the world, it still leads to that. But the word, by its very construction, implies that being a witness is hard. Being a witness is costly. Being a witness is sacrificial. Sometimes that sacrifice is life, but always it's sacrificial. Jesus says, you will be my witnesses. And he means that our mission is to point others to him. Our mission is always in his service. And just as people rejected him, people will reject us as we serve him. So friends, being a witness, which is really not optional, being a witness doesn't work well if your main concern is being liked. Being a witness is not easy. It may cost you relationships. It may cost you position and title. And these are just some of those other temptations that creep in. These are some of those objections that, we come, that, that come to us that try and uh, keep us from mission. Being a witness is hard, but it, again, it's, it's non-negotiable. You will be my witnesses if you have the Holy Spirit. 
And so to be a Christian is to be a witness. And I want you to think of being a witness in two ways, a living witness and a vocal witness. You really can't have one without the other. But there are different times and there are different places and there are different people that require a different approach. So as we are witnesses, there's two parts to this, a living witness and a vocal witness. And Jason gave me this illustration. I'm very thankful for it. 1924, the Olympics, they were just Olympics at the time. They uh, didn't have the winner. The, well, they didn't separate them every other year, every two years. Uh, that year, the Summer Olympics were held in Paris. And everyone expected this uh, man named Eric Liddell to easily win the 100-meter race. So if you know the story, if you've seen Chariots of Fire, maybe you know the history. Uh, Liddell represented Scotland. He was a Scotsman. And he was the top-rated short-distance and middle-distance runner. Top-rated in his day. He was also a devout Christian. Well, the qualifying heats for the 100-meter race, they were held on a Sunday. And Liddell refused to run in the qualifying race because his conscience did not permit him to compete on the Lord's Day. And of course, he he didn't uh, run in the heats, and so he was disqualified from the medal race, even though he was the number one contender. He later went on in that very same Olympics to win the 400-meter race, to win gold in it. But everyone thought he was crazy. He was, he was good in the 400-meter. He was great in the 100-meter. Everyone thought that he was crazy for forgoing his best race because of his faith, because of his commitment to his conscience. And later... After this, when people are interviewing him and he's, he's uh, telling why he did what he did, he said, I believe that God made me for a purpose, but he has also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. And, and a lot of us know that quote, but we forget what happened just a few sentences later, what he said a few sentences later. He said, we are all missionaries Wherever we go, we either bring people nearer to Christ or we repel them from Christ. So when you think about a living witness, I want you to think about Eric Liddell. When you think about a living witness, he took pleasure in knowing how God had gifted him. He took delight in using his gifts and his platform to point others to Jesus. He, he did what God called him and gifted him to do in a way that was a witness as an athlete. So not everyone is going to be called to go to Honduras like the Coonies. But how has God gifted you? To what has he called you? How does your life bring others nearer to Christ? In, 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 the, in the way that you live, in the way that you go about your vocation, how does your life serve as a living witness? Now, you may have heard the quote attributed to Francis of Assisi, who supposedly said, preach Jesus, and if necessary, use words. Have you heard that? If you've heard that, if you've uh, maybe sort of adopted that as a life motto, stop it. It's a bad quote. It's bad theology. It's bad missiology. There are times when God will use us as living witnesses to use our gifts in his service to point others to Jesus. But a living witness is also a vocal witness. 
If I told you a moment ago, the word witness is the Greek word martyr. But that's not the whole meaning. A witness is someone who testifies and reports about what they have seen or experienced. You know what I think one of the perfect examples of a witness is in Scripture? It's the woman in John 4. The woman at the well who's confronted by Jesus. She goes back into town and she says, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Her, her life changes ostensibly, but it's, she's not just a living witness now, she's a vocal witness. Jesus says, you will be my witnesses, and part of that happens in the way that we live out our life's calling, in the way that we live lives of distinct faith, hope, and love. But part of that happens when we faithfully testify about the power of the gospel that we have experienced. So growing up, um, I, I went to countless youth retreats and camps and conferences. And I can't tell you how many times I heard someone passionately call us young people to give our lives to missions. How many times the, the call was extended to, to give our lives to, to serving as a missionary. And, and a lot of it, friends, was emotional manipulation. It was emotionally manipulative. But I, I'm convinced that in reaction to that or in response to that, that a lot of guys of my generation have stopped calling people to give their lives to missions. And so young people, can I say this particularly for you since you know, the chart of your life has not yet been, in, or the course of your life has not yet been entirely charted? Make your plans, but make them with an open hand. Make your plans with an open hand. You, you may plan to go to this school or focus on that major, but do you know that God is in the business of wrecking plans? Your first call is to be a witness, to be a witness. God may call you to be a witness as a world-class runner, or he may call you to be a witness as an accountant, or he may call you to be a missionary who goes to the ends of the earth proclaiming the gospel. And that's where mission leads. Mission is meant to lead to the end of the earth. Let me end with this. There's a couple of interesting things about Jesus' words. He says, Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. A couple of interesting things. First, it began with where they were, and it continually moved further out. Right? It began where they were, and then continually moved further out. Uh, for the last half century or so, evangelical churches, and we would consider ourselves part of that, uh, have in many ways circumvented God's plan that's clearly, uh, that's clearly given to us in Scripture. See, what we've done is we've sent, we've sent missionaries and we've sent money to the ends of the earth, but we've neglected our own Jerusalem. Thankfully, over the last couple of decades at least, there's been this renewed emphasis on church planting and reaching the unchurched. I think we've corrected some of those mistakes, but... but um, beginning with the great missions movement following the second great awakening, there was an emphasis to sort of go around Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and just go to the ends of the earth, forgetting that you have neighbors in South Tulsa, and you have neighbors in Broken Arrow who are just as lost as the people the Coonies minister to. And so it's a, it's a good plan. It was given to us by our Lord. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. 
Here's another thing about Jesus' words that I find interesting. Not only were they called to move further out, but they were called to move to people who were unlike them, even hostile to them. God's missional mandate isn't only concerned with places, but the people who inhabit those places, Samaria. People who were hostile to them, who hated them. And so you may be called to remain in Tulsa, to witness to people who are pretty much like you. Or, God may have you go to Samaria to witness to people who have no category for the Christian faith. And you know what? It takes both. It takes both. I don't believe that Jesus is saying that every single believer will progressively move further out. That is our collective mission. Our collective mission as God's people until he returns is to go to people unlike us and to move further and further away from where we are. You see, the Lord tells us that he's gathering a people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And he will do that. But the way that he has chosen to do that is through the collective witness of the church. It's through us. And so that is our mission. It seems fairly clear. To be living vocal witnesses with a gospel message of transformation. And the time for each of us is now. And let's pray for boldness and strength to go about that. Father, thank you for your word and for this historical record and for Luke um, who continued the the gospel story of Jesus um, even after Jesus had ascended into what his people uh, are called to be about. We're thankful for this encouraging record, this this historical record about um, what the early church was, was like and what their priorities were, but I pray that we would not just see it as a, as a mere historical record, Lord, but as your revelation to us, even now, that you've given us a mission. We're thankful that you've not just left us here and said, you know, figure it out for yourselves and go about it in your own strength, but you've made it clear to us, you've given us the Holy Spirit. So the mission hasn't changed. About 1,970 years have passed, but the mission hasn't changed. And so, Lord, I pray that as your people, as one just particular manifestation of your people at Christ Presbyterian, that to us the mission would be clear. That whether it's sending uh, money and our own people to minister with the Coonies, or whether it is uh, young people that we will pray that you will raise up to take their place and, and to go to the ends of the earth, it takes, it takes everyone. Or, Lord, whether it's to, um, it's to be a witness uh, in a high-rise building downtown or in a classroom in South Tulsa, that we would see that our call is to be witnesses, living and vocal, so that Jesus, uh, his name might be proclaimed. And so, Lord, do your work through us for your glory, for the, the building and good of your kingdom. In Christ's name, amen.